Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Anthony Willoughby, who is a long-term friend of mine, who spends his life living it with curiosity, passion, and courage. Anthony, would you mind giving a quick introduction to who you are um, and your history so far? It may take longer than two minutes. Yeah, well, I'm coming up to my 70th birthday next month. So, uh, yeah, a fair amount has vaguely happened. Now, I'm basically eighth-generation itinerant Brit. So my family were all brought up in India. I was brought up in Africa. And my children were all brought up in, uh, in Japan. So really, it's been a life of living in different places. I was born, as I say, in Africa, brought up there, educated in England. Age of 22, I took a one-way ticket off to Japan on the Trans-Siberian Express, really, in sort of search of adventure, fun, and, uh, and opportunities. There were not many in England in 1973, as some people may remember. <laughs> um, but then I started going off on a series of different journeys, whether it was Beijing in 75 or uh, East Africa in uh, 1982. And it was on that trip in East Africa where I first saw the Maasai. And what I saw is that they'd come into our little encampment, and what I saw is they had absolute presence. They had substance without arrogance. And I realized my entire education was how could you be massively arrogant with minimum substance? <laughs> my school actually threw in effortless insincerity, extremely <laughs> with it. So I sort of thought, you know, what is it? You're a great advert for Harrow. I am a great advert, yes. And I started to think, so what is it? Why don't we have this presence? Why don't we have confidence? Why don't we have identity? So when I got back to Tokyo, I went to see the Papua New Guinea uh, ambassador in Tokyo. And I started asking him, so what have you got that we've lost? And he says, well, I really don't know. Why don't you go to my village? And this chap, Joseph Nombri, remembers pre-contact. So it goes back a long time. And so you're basically talking to your ancestors around wisdom and leadership. He says, go to, your, go to my village. So I went to his village up in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. And uh, they were still running around in uh, arse grass, carrying axes, spears, and feathers. And uh, <laughs> so I said, sort of curious, and one or two of them spoke English. I said, why do you have so many feathers? They said, well, a big man has many feathers, but a bigger man can hand out his feathers. And it made me think of all those people I knew in Tokyo who thought they had been incredibly successful because they had director on their name card. Right. But nobody would follow them. Nobody would respect them. And I started to realize they thought information was power that should be kept. And I asked really about why do you have the spear? And they said, well, you have to earn it. You can't buy it. You can't sell it. You can't give it away. You have to accept the responsibility that comes with the spear. And I started to realize that maybe we think we can buy spears. We don't have to earn them. We have entitlement because of our education, not on how we contribute, not on how we protect our community, not on how we have our identity based on courage, respect, and the values of the community. So I started to see the link and the difference, really, between Westerns and, and sort of the indigenous people. And when I got back to Tokyo, I asked the ambassador, what is the single most important thing in his life? Thinking he'd say his car, his family, his house, something like that. Banged on the table, looked to me and said, it is my territory. And he then drew a map of what his territory looked like, literally on a napkin. 
and spent the next two hours talking about his world, where everything fitted in, where his enemy were, where his threats were, where his culture was, and how from the age of three, he'd been taught to protect his territory. Therefore, he knew his duty and he knew his aims and ambitions. And it started to make me think, what are my aims and ambitions? What is my duty? And it started really making me think that maybe we are the first generation since our ancestors left the cave that have had the freedom and the opportunity to shape our own destiny. And I think for many, many, it is frightening because we don't know our duty. We don't know our identity. And what are the substitutes that we put in that go with it? And I think that is one of our challenges we face today. So it's really been this essence of looking after territory, which is something I learned 30 years ago that has really guided my principles in life ever since. So tell me this, in business context, what is your territory? Well, this is what I found intriguing because I was interested in territory. So I got a couple of maps drawn by other people in Papua New Guinea. And I saw the clarity, the the hunting area, the fishing area, the village, the river. They knew where everything was, and therefore all conversations had context and relevance. And based on my journeys and expeditions that I'd been on, I opened the first outdoor team building company in Japan, which happened to be called I Will Not Complain, but that's another story. <laughs> but but basically, I was working with a chap called Dan Vedetto, who was from Thompson Financial. And they were going to do a partnership on the sales partnership long before they merged with Tom, salespeople from Thompson and salespeople from Reuters. And he said, I don't need another team building program. They just don't know each other. So what could you do? And I said, well, look, could I try something that I have wanted to try, but I have no idea how it'll go? He said, yeah, of course you can. So I gave them both a blank sheet of paper, or the people there, about half a dozen of them. I said, could you draw your territory? What are you hunting? What does your village look like? And instantly, they started to draw mammoths. They started to draw fish. They started to draw farming. And they could start to articulate, say, Thomson Reuters, or Thomson, rather, I said, right, we're trying to hunt Morgan Stanley. We're trying to fish in the Bloomberg area. We're trying to do this. And Reuters said, ah, we have the roots to these animals. And as soon as they could work out who had the root, who had the weapons, who knew the animals, who knew the territory, they could instantly start coming up with a plan. And how to say that made them the most successful sales team by a, a long margin because everybody knew their roles, their responsibilities, and their identity. And that's really what I've been doing over the last 30 years, is to use mapping as a way of getting people to talk to each other. Because what I've discovered is inside absolutely everybody, there is a map. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you are. People can draw a map showing how they see their territory. They can show their enemy. They can show their friends. They can show the rivers, deserts, mountains, and swamps. The difference between a business and an indigenous community is in a business, everybody's map is totally and utterly different. That's why there is no context and there's often no relevance 
And that's why meetings go round and round and round, because there is no substance or context to what people are talking about, because the meaning of it is completely and utterly different. So gradually what we do is we bring everybody onto the same map, so therefore their conversations can have some relevance. So how much of this is down to our culture of lauding individualism and personal responsibility and personal achievement over the collective good? I think this is what the wonderful thing about COVID is. I think it is finally making us rethink this. And that's why I think this is having an extremely positive effect. Because in the past, most people have gone to university, got some sort of an education, got a job, got director on their name card, and they own a BMW, so they think they're self-actualizing. And they can lord people around, and they're so busy, they haven't got time actually to talk to anybody or care about them. And I think you're, you're quite right that now, finally, people are beginning to realize what is the point of what we're doing? How do we inspire people? How do we give people hope? Because the key indigenous learning that I've got, leadership is the ability to give people hope. If you can't give people hope, you cannot lead them and they will not follow you. And that's why I think in today's experiences, giving people hope, looking at what indigenous people have been doing for thousands of years has never been more relevant. So if we put this into the context of a fast-growing business, for example, where often you're having to do multiple roles, uh, you're under pressure, you're under constant change, how does having a map help you stay grounded and stay on purpose? I think to do that is extremely difficult, especially now when everybody is working remotely. But what the mapping does, there are two main things it does. First of all, it supplies the leader with insights of how people actually see things, which is incredibly useful. Because in actual fact, if I say, please draw a map of your territory, you will draw a physical map of where you see your friends, your enemies, your rivers to cross. But what you're actually drawing is your emotional perceptions of how you see things. So for a leader to see someone's map is very useful. But then it is extremely useful for everybody else to see what their goals are, what are their responsibilities, what is their identity, and ultimately how they see their business. And now in this COVID crisis, it's been fascinating to see how people see a seismic shift. And a lot of the maps now are showing literally seismology, earthquakes, caverns appearing, total disruptions, storms. And even with one company, a Japanese company, drawing that they're all heading along towards this mountain of success, and all of a sudden the ground has fallen away in front of them. They no longer know how to plan. They no longer know how to pivot. And therefore, in this time of panic, or let's say massive opportunity. I see this as an opportunity of unimaginable scale. Absolutely, I agree. And therefore, people have to realize, because they've got a choice. They can be negative or they can accept the realities and get on with it. 
And I mean, I've been listening to so many podcasts of people talking about first you get angry, then you get disappointed, then you get this, and then you get realistic. Yeah, well, basically, that's the morning process. And I, know, I, know, I know, I know, I know. But when I listen, the last thing you should be doing at this stage is going into mourning. No, I know. Uh, but when know. I listen to that, I say, look, yeah, this is why we work with nomads and we bring nomads to teach. In Mongolia, there's an expression called shit happens. Yeah. <laughs> and you get on with it. And I think that's what we all have to do now is to start realizing that if you want to lead, you have to be able to articulate momentum, direction, purpose, point. Where are we going? And you can't do it using words because there is no dynamism in words. That's why a map is so important today. I've noticed there is a big uh, difference in the baby boomers and Gen X to Gen Z and... Uh, millennials. When I'm working with companies that are populated largely by younger people, the things that they are looking for in their work are purpose, meaning, growth. They're looking for contribution. Not everybody, but there is a, a definite seismic shift in terms of their outlook. Now, they're often accused of being entitled and lazy, which I don't agree with. I think one of the things that comes out of um, knowing you for all this time is the importance of elders and them sharing their knowledge, sharing their wisdom. So can you talk to Vassar for a moment? I can do. I think everybody imagines the elder is sitting down, sitting there and telling people what to do. Now, that is one thing. Yes, they're respected of their authority. But let's say within a Maasai tribe or within a community, Every five years, there is an age group. And within that age group, they select a leader. And that leader can then sit with the elders and has equal say in what is going on. So it is not just the elders from on high directing. It is the different age groups explaining what is going on. So the elders listen to people as to what is happening. And there's even a lovely expression in Japanese. The person who raises their voice has lost the argument. And the person who speaks less has probably got the most authority. And I think what we're so interested or believe the elders do is to speak the most. They don't. They're the ones that listen to what is going on. And then they hand out the spear to the warriors to actually go and look after the cattle. Because there is this whole area of moving from boy and girl through to being the warrior, protecting your cattle. Then you become the junior elder, the senior elder. With each one of those changes, your responsibility, authority, and accountability change dramatically. And that is what I think we forget, is we forget that authority, responsibility, and accountability evolve with age, with responsibility, and therefore our behavior has got to adapt to the environment we find ourselves into. So given how you've mentioned how entitled you were coming out of Harrow and how blind to all of this you were, what advice would you give to people who are who still have the opinion that because of their age, their education, 
their economic status, that they really need to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror? Well, I think it depends whether they can afford to or not. I mean, if they afford to, why on earth change? I mean, when I was about 27, my father wrote me a letter saying, Dear Anthony, I'm sorry, I think you're behaving a bit like a 21-year-old. And I said, you've got it wrong. I'm behaving like a 16-year-old, having so much fun, but I can afford it. (laughs) But I think really the sense of entitlement, I mean, I was probably the most unpopular boy at school. I was, you know, failed in absolutely everything. So I don't think I ever really had that sense of entitlement. I mean, I describe my education as it didn't really damage my brain. (laughs) Because to me, education is simply part of the way of enslaving people. I mean, since civilizations began 5,000 years ago, or a little bit longer, there's always been 50% of the population who has been enslaved. And I think we're just as enslaved or has been what we have to own, what we have to say, what we have to have on our job title. And I think this is the joy again of what is going on, is all of this was being reevaluated over the last 10 years. And this has finally pushed it that people can start to live their lives with freedom, with decency, and actually to give people hope and inspiration. I think to take that a little bit further, what most people do not recognize is that we are a cash crop. The majority of us are a cash crop for government. Uh, We're a cash crop for large corporations. And if we're not making those choices, not to be shackled to those material things or to that status, then we're, we're falling into that trap. You know, and that's what I love about the Great Wall of China, where we had our training center. Because the Great Wall of China is along the line of 10 inches of rain. So basically, north of that, you are nomadic. South of that, you are agricultural and, in theory, civilized. But what I love is north of it, the Mongolian expression, the more you have, the less you are. Because you're valued on your courage, your contribution, and your ability to be noble and, and, and move around and look after your cattle. Whereas south of it, the more complex you can make your life, the more you can own, the more status you have from ownership, the more complex your life becomes. And it was wonderful sitting on the wall asking people which side of the wall is their mentality. Do they have that freedom to be respected for who they are and for their courage? Or is it around their ability to be enslaved and if you think of sitting on the Great Wall, that is the ultimate enslavement of the millions who died. And I think today we have to understand what is enslaving us and can we obtain some freedom from it? That's certainly food for thought. How do you find management responds when you bring them the concept of mapping? Well, it it sort of depends who you're doing it with. It it really, the first thing is it requires courage because people actually have got to be willing to say, I don't know all the answers. We have a hundred years of wisdom in this room. I want to see how everybody sees our territory and how we can actually overcome the challenges we face. So the first thing it requires is courage on someone. The other thing is still this arrogance of 
what university uses it. And I'm happy to say we're now being taught at a business school in America, and it is being proved incredibly successful on the whole steps of the nomadic ways of thinking, starting to use mapping, starting to use animal husbandry, and a whole lot of other things to actually get people to start realizing there is a different way. Because really, again, sorry, going back to the, where the essence comes from, but for the first 99.9% of human existence, we've had to know our territory. We've had to be able to articulate the problems we're solving. It's only now in business that we have so much complexity that people love being in that complexity because the inconvenience of not knowing something is, is all about power. So a lot of people do not want to have clarity. But what I'm finding with COVID is things are getting so bad that people are always thinking Willoughby might have a solution. <laughs> so it is really a matter of the mentality of the person actually realizing they don't have the answer. And that is very, very, very rare because most people think they're brilliant. Well, that touches on something that I spend a lot of my work teaching and reinforcing which is the importance of vulnerability. Vulnerability is the ultimate expression of courage. And in my experience, the people who cannot be vulnerable tend to be very brittle. And when things change that are out of their control, then they find their, they, they spend their life complaining about and blaming extrinsic circumstance. But I think you've touched on it right at the beginning, which is how does one respond to adversity and recognizing that you don't have all the answers. And I, I suspect one of the, the strengths of a nomadic community is the interdependence that these people have and the reliance on one another rather than trying to just prove themselves. Is that something that you've observed? Yeah, that's 100% spot on. I mean, that's what they're taught from the age of three. If you see a hyena, this is what you do. If we have a drought, this is how we make decisions. I mean, I remember once in Kenya with a Maasai community, I said, so who's the leader around here? They looked at me and they said, so what is the problem you're trying to solve? We have many leaders. <laughs> your problem, And we'll tell you who is the most qualified and who has the most ability to solve it. What a lovely response. Yeah, and I think we're so keen on just trying to find a solution. But, but going back to where I, my whole I will not complain philosophy came on, <laughs> I was basically going back to Papua New Guinea, uh, having met the ambassador in Tokyo and things, and I decided to walk from the Fly to Sepik Rivers, which is about 180 kilometers, right across the, the backbone of the mountains of Papua New Guinea. And I saw that there were villages so I thought food won't be a problem, but I thought wine might be. So we had 24 bottles of wine and no food. And chocolate. And chocolate. A little bit of chocolate, some Ovaltine bars. But there was myself, my wife-to-be, my best man, the chat called Philip. And basically, Philip started complaining about <laughs> the weather, about my leadership, about this, about that, and let's leave some wine. And what I saw is that a complainer totally and utterly destroys morale because the complainer is fundamentally the coward. They will never confront the leader. They will try to undermine by going around to everybody saying, have you thought of this? Are you sure we shouldn't be doing that? And that is when I saw that it completely destroys leadership. 
And that's why when I went on an expedition to climb Africa's three, 5,000-meter peaks in preparation for a mountain in China, I got everybody to sign a document. I will not complain if I get eaten or trodden on by animals. Extra porters <laughs> employed to carry wine. Because I think complaining, especially now, is the most destructive form of entitlement that there is. And I think if I believe I can complain to you, that is taking entitlement to a new level. I think we have to realize we cannot control our environment. All we can do is to give other people hope on how to adapt to it and therefore come up with solutions. It's interesting because um, one of my favorite maxims is ego is the enemy. And with ego comes victimhood, it comes persecution, interfering and helping without permission or boundaries, rescuing. You get complaining, whining, moaning, bitching, blaming, and a massive sense of entitlement. And if you operate from there, then you're deeply unattractive to others. You suck hope from them. You do, but a lot of organizations or a lot of sort of this personal growth actually exists on making sure you're a victim. I mean, I remember going on a program in America many, many, many years ago. And they said, so when have you been a victim? It must be of your father, your mother, this, that, and the other. But all I could say was, well, I've often been a victim, but it's always been of my own stupidity. (laughs) And I agree with you entirely. If If you stop being the victim, you don't fall into all the rest of it because it has to start with you being a victim. And that is what people love because then they can be the center of attention and they can be the one complaining and pulling people down. We cannot afford that in the current environment we're in. Absolutely. Well, then there there are two models that I use, the drama triangle and the winner's triangle that come from uh, transactional analysis. And the drama triangle is made up of the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And it's all about ego. The winner's triangle is about being vulnerable, about being nurturing and empathic, and also about being assertive. It doesn't mean that you have to be a walkover. Uh, Vulnerability means you put yourself in harm's way. You make yourself woundable, and you do it anyway as an act of courage, because, and also because it's the right thing to do. And you operate with compassion. You operate with empathy, and you nurture other people, so you help them uh, achieve their potential. And that allows you to be fully authentic. And it also allows you to be firmly rooted in the present, not worrying about the future or stuck in the past and hanging on to those old past hurts. It's a bit like uh, carrying um, the old uh, Greenfield stamp book uh, or a a Starbucks loyalty card. You're just stamping this book with all of your purple bruises and all of your entitlement. And eventually you cash it in and you throw a hissy fit, uh, or you start blame somebody else for your own circumstance rather than taking ownership and responsibility uh, for it. Um, And like you, you certainly most of the things that have happened that have been negative in my life have been of my own making. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no issue. I must say one other person I'd love to introduce you to for, for this conversation is a chap called Krishna Taupo. And he is born in a small village in Nepal. And as a small boy growing up, he used to watch these foreigners wandering off to climb Annapurna. 
Anyway, like any good Nepali, he wanted to become a Gurkha. So he became a Gurkha. And then he was the first Gurkha to be invited to join the SAS. So he then joined the SAS. He's been there for 20 years now. And then they said, do you want to climb mountains or uh, be in the... So I better be a mountaineer. So the first mountains he ever climbed were in Snowdonia. And then they sort of, we went on to do all sorts of mountaineering. And then they said, well... The Gurkhas want to climb Everest uh, for the 150th anniversary. Could you lead it? So he said, well, I've never climbed a high mountain. So he then had to go and climb an 8,000-meter mountain, which he did. He then went off to climb Everest three times and lead the group up there, and he's climbed K2. And he is just so philosophical on exactly the point you make, humility, karma, relaxing, and what leadership is. And I think you'd find it fascinating talking to him. I would love that. Because he absolutely makes every one of those points that you have made, which is, I think, the the way forward. I think this points to another factor, which is attachment. In Buddhism, Buddha says that attachment is the root to all misery. And it points back to your Mongolian saying, which is the more you have, the less you are. I think so often we are attached to how people perceive us, attached to the outcome, attached to a promotion, attached to material things. And we forget that actually as a species of social primates, our biggest, our greatest satisfaction comes from our contribution. So when we look at these nomadic people, how do they value individual contribution? And what what drives people to contribute fully? Well, I think it's very much the interdependence. Because I think the idea that they're all sort of together as a happy tribe, sort of, you know, helping each other, they're not really, they're all looking after their animals. So they're always looking after their wealth, protecting it. But the thing is that if, is there a threat to their community Or is it a threat to their family? So it all depends on the hierarchy of threat, so to speak. So if there are enemy coming onto their territory to eat their grazing, and I've seen it done, then they all get together and work out how do we do that solution. So a lot of the time it is the independence and the structure and certain ways there's far too much hierarchy. There are far too many taboos. There's FGM, which they're trying to break, and they're trying to do all sorts of taboos they're trying to break. So I'm not saying for a moment it is ideal, and they're quite open to talk about it. But it is really the individual seeing how they can influence and change their community on what is better for the community, and there's a lot of bigotry in that. So that's why it's not ideal, but I think it's objective to look at the clarity they have and why they have it. Well, I think you've also pointed to something else uh, around their ability to make decisions uh, around known factors, even if they come as a surprise or they're serious threats. The ability to have a decision-making process already mapped out. How has that enabled them to survive for so long? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, I remember going to them once and saying, so imagine, they said, well, what's the problem you want to solve? I said, well, you've got a leader, you've got an enemy coming onto your territory. What would you do? They said, well, we would go and select Joe probably because we'd see how his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather dealt with that problem. 
which is obviously a bit of a luxury that we don't have. But it was really looking at the collective knowledge and how they actually make decisions. But, I mean, I think how many people, business people, have you spoken to and said, so what is the most important decision that you have actually made in the last six months? And they will look at you absolutely blankly because they have not made an important decision. They've always been just in this sort of on the train, moving along slowly. And that's why they haven't made a decision. And that's where with the nomads, you've got to make decisions. I mean, I've been on with nomads a couple of years ago, migrating from their winter to spring pastures. It was five days in minus 30, riding 140 kilometers through the mountains. Phenomenal experience. But they have to make decisions. And those decisions, everybody has to follow on. It's not, hello, well, we're going to leave someone behind or, you know, I can't be bothered to go. And I think there's no real pressure on people in business, or there hasn't been, to have to make a decision. And this is what I think COVID, again, is forcing, is people now realize they have to make decisive decisions and they have to look at other criteria because things are changing. There's an old maxim, which is, if you're green, you grow. If you're ripe, you rot. And I'm curious how important learning is within these nomadic communities. Yeah, this is obviously where I've spent a fair amount of time because I'm fascinated by what is education. And, you know, if you sort of look at this trust wheel that I've created with the Maasai, the first part, you've got all of the clarity around what you have to know, your territory, your livestock and everything. Then you have to start looking at your decision making. So, what are the decisions? What are the threats? How do you make those decisions? But far, far more important is what is under in the Southern Hemisphere. And that is really your ability to give people hope, your ability to have courage, your ability to have a community, an ability to have values. So from a very, very, very early age, from the age of three in Kenya or in any in indigenous community, a child is given a goat. And they're told, you are the most important person in the community because you are looking after our future. If the goat survives, our community survives. So their entire education is around responsibility and looking after the community. That is the core. And the absolute core of that is trust. Trust yourself, trust your community, trust others. Those are the absolute key of their, of their education. And basically, so that is, if you imagine, the Southern Hemisphere is all around the values of their education, their responsibilities within that community to create stability and security. And when they send their kids off to school, which obviously they now do by law and because they want to, when their kids come back from their time at school, they bring them all together, or in one community I know where they do it, and they educate them. They tell the children, you might have education, you might be able to read and write, you might know all this, but let us tell you, this is not wisdom. This is knowledge. You can help our community with your knowledge, but it is not what we value. It is not our wisdom, and that is what we value more than anything else in education. So... Talk to me about how they define wisdom. 
That would be a very good question. And again, what I would suggest you do is you have a conversation with Emmanuel Mancura, my Maasai friend, who would also love to be involved in this uh, program uh, that, you, that you've that you got here. These conversations. But I think, yes, what is wisdom? And, and to me, it is, I think, the, the combination of respect, responsibility, and courage. And it is the ability to make the right decisions that are adaptable to the community or sensible for the whole community. And that is what they're trying to educate. So the leaders, the elders, would, would be perceived to have wisdom because of sound judgment. But that has come because they have sort of earned it on the way up. You, it's not entitlement. Right. So I think what I'm extrapolating from this is that if you make decisions that are selfish, they are not wise. And they, they lack uh, the responsibility to the community. They lack the courage to do the right thing. I think that is a pretty idealistic uh, statement, but I think it is absolutely true. But again, I think, you know, the trouble for us in the West is who we can rely on and who we can trust. So therefore, I think we often, often have to think much more about our own perceptions and our own judgment and our own gut feel uh, than maybe we would if we were in more of an indigenous community. Well, let, let's take, bring this into an operational, practical arena uh, around the uh, building a team and recruiting a team. When you're working with your clients, clearly recruitment has to be a critical part of how businesses evolve and grow. Are you able to use the mapping and uh, the lessons that you've learned to help them guide them into recruiting the right kind of people? That I have done very, very occasionally. And I think the, the frustration, to be honest with you, with the mapping I've been running, I've been running amazing workshops. And I'm sure you know the frustration yourself. They're incredibly successful. Everybody comes up with these amazing ideas, and then they totally and utterly ignore them. And nothing really, really changes. So I think gradually what, what is happening is people are realizing, and that's what I wanted to work with people who've got that continuity of relationship with a client so they can start to see it happening. So you ask about recruitment, and this is something I've only done occasionally, but my God, it was effective, and it has been effective, we've used it, is basically when a company's got a map of what's happening in their territory, if someone then comes on for recruitment, what they do is they say, clearly, you've been looking at us on the website. You know all about our business and the industry. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Here is a blank sheet of paper. Could you draw your career history and where you picked up the skills, knowledge, and experience you have? And could you draw us how you see our map of our business territory? And where would your experience help us contribute uh, to where your business is going forward? And that's unbelievably effective because then you can start to show the map and you can have a real conversation with a recruit. On a practical note, what kind of instruction do you need to give them? Because conceptually, if someone were to ask me that without knowing you and uh, your background, I would really struggle to understand what you are asking. Yeah, I mean, I've got about a half-hour story that I tell in illustrated by slides, which is why we have to think like a nomad, how my ideas evolve, and then showing people examples, whether it's from the Gates Foundation and other companies, of how they have used mapping to pivot and make important decisions. 
And then I ask them to think about how their map is and what they should draw. And what I've always thought until recently is I have to do this face to face. But what I now realize is I can do this remotely. I've just been speaking to someone in Australia this morning. I briefed a group of 15 people over the, over the web. And I said, you've got five days now to draw your map. They've just been away on an offsite uh, in the outback explaining their maps and what their journey is. So it does seem that with this briefing, which is very, very general, because I don't want to guide people on what they have to think. It's how do you see your world at this moment? So everybody's is, has got as valid a, a, elite, an idea as everybody else. And the other thing is you can't, the leader's map is always shown last. It's interesting that you're removing bias from the mapping right from the off, because what I've seen happen so often, and coming from Harrow, Eaton, or uh, Oxbridge, or wherever, I think one of the dangers is groupthink. Now, I'm curious to see how nomadic people are able to avoid that kind of groupthink. Because in my experience, what that tends to mean is you only have a very narrow view of the world. Is that possible in a community that's grown up? Um, the way they I mean, that is what's happening with the Maasai. You know, until a few years ago, they wouldn't embrace Western education. They wouldn't do this. They wouldn't do that. The government came in and put land subdivision and everything else, and they could basically become extinct as a culture. So, yes, so you've got the elders saying we've got to continue with FGM, we've got to continue in this way, we can't send our kids to education, and that can lead to absolute oblivion. So it's not saying that it's absolutely perfect the way that they do it. Mongolia is slightly different because you've got far, far smaller groups, and since Genghis Khan, they haven't actually been getting together and uh, you know, going on the warpath. So they, they work independently of that. But, you know, again, you've got uh, overgrazing, which is absolutely destroying because everybody thinks wealth is how many cattle you have. So then you have a drought and it wipes out all your cattle. Or you've got to have more children and some of them are unhealthy and therefore you can't sustain it. So it is this myopic of the, of the nomad that is just as bad in some ways as the myopic of of businesses. And that's why I think there's so much to learn. Very interesting. Tell me this, if you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Anthony age 23, what would you whisper in his ear? Well, I think I basically, that was exactly the age that I got on the Trans-Siberian Express on uh, August the 17th. And sort of se September the 7th, I uh, 73, I arrived in Japan. So I think it is always to absolutely realize we do have a one-way ticket in life. That's the only thing we have that is absolutely sure. And I think we have to look at what our goals are. In 1988, 30 years ago, I wrote down exactly what I wanted to achieve and what I'd learned from my journeys and expeditions. I thought the most important thing to do was to unlock trust and willpower in individuals. And that has been my mission for the last 30 years and hopefully it'll be for the next 30 years. Because I think without trusting ourselves and trusting others, and without having the willpower, the courage, and the energy 
what is the point of living? So I think it is really to look at life as a sheer adventure. Don't look at your corporate status, who you are. Corporations are simply part of the enslaving system. It's how do you get your freedom of choice to shape your own destiny, define it, believe in it, and do it. And this is what we're now teaching literally students from the age of 11 in a school in Dubai, to look at what is their quest in life, what are the three words in life they need, and then what they can learn from others from that life journey they've been on. What are your three words? Curiosity, passion, courage. You've got to be curious. You've got to be passionate about what you're, you're, you know, what you're curious about. And by God, you've got to have the courage to put it through. Because as you know, I'm also founder of the Cock-Up Club. <laughs> and that is to celebrate the wisdom of life experience. And as Churchill said, success in life is stumbling from one disaster to another while maintaining one's enthusiasm. And that I passionately believe in. You know, I think I've sort of been consistent, but I think this is what kids need to learn. And this is what we're teaching them is what are their three words they need? What is that quest in life they need? And be proud of it. So what was your best cock up? Oh, I suppose falling out of a window in China, trying to sort of uh, uh, impress someone and uh, dislocating my pelvis. It sort of taught me something quite reasonably good. But <laughs> you know, I've made many bad judgments in business and other things. I mean. You know, they're, they're legendary and, and massive and, and uh, consistent. <laughs> How often do you get the Cocker Club together? I don't know. I've been doing a bit of it sort of once a year or something like that, but I plan to do more of it. I think it's, uh, you know, again, with this whole coronavirus stuff, it's just such an opportunity to get people together in different ways. Absolutely. I, I don't think I've ever learned anything substantive or meaningful from my victories, but I've learned a lot from a damn good drubbing. Okay, so what would you recommend people read, watch, listen to, because they're mind-expanding, they give you insight into the kind of freedom that you potentially have at your fingertips, if only uh, you were to make the choice? Yeah, to be honest, I don't really read that much. But what I suggest is people just, if they want to find, if they want to find out about something, they ring the person who knows about it. So just ring them up and talk to them. I mean, that's what I've spent my life doing, you know, is ringing people up on the phone saying, hello, how are you? You know, I'm Anthony Willoughby. I'm interested in what you're doing. And I just think it is finding people to talk to and having interesting conversations. I, well, I've certainly found that the podcast has done that for me. Yeah. I've got to speak to 150 people whose combined wisdom I could never have dreamt of uh, accruing and it's been incredibly valuable. So I endorse that. It's listening to people. And it's actually having that connection with them. That's why with the school children, I want everybody to draw their life journey. So even you know, people who've climbed Everest or anything else, where did they pick up their values and start letting children realize that we're all pretty insecure and unsure of what we're trying to do? Let us enjoy that. That has got to be the wisdom that, that comes out of life. I think one of the most useful lessons that I learned was from a mentor of mine, Mark Goulston, and his observation is let go or be dragged. And I think far too often we're hanging on to old past hurts and we're catastrophizing, we're running this movie in our head that tells us how hard done by we are 
And that puts us straight into the victim mentality. Yeah, but that's also convenient because then we don't have to make a decision. I guess. I mean, a decision not to make a decision is a decision. It's an opt-out. And it's the lazy way out. No, I completely and utterly agree with you. Totally and utterly agree. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I think it's really now working out, first of all, how do I find people who are open-minded enough to what I do? But I think now it is simply a matter of how do I scale what I've been talking about for the last 30 years? I mean, as you know, talking to someone in Australia today who'd been using mapping with their executive team, I was talking to a girl in Dubai and her mother, she's 13, but how do we bring the mapping and the whole area of indigenous wisdom into the moral education of education? You know, I mean, there's just masses and masses of opportunity now of people for looking for some clarity. So it's simply trying to find the audience. Okay. So one of the things that I've observed with great effect is what users and customers say. So how are you galvanizing your historical customers going back 30, 40 years all the way to to today to have them tell your story for you? Well, that's basically what I've been doing with the MBA program in America. So what we have is a whole series of tutorials, whether it's people from Dyson, whether it's entrepreneurs who've sort of built 60 million pound businesses, and they credit it all down to mapping and how it gave them the clarity. So I've got about 15, 16 tutorials of people talking specifically how they've used it. And what I've now got within schools are teachers explaining how this is different. And the professor in America says this has been the most effective way of teaching his marketing course in 35 years that he's come across. And how are you getting that out through social media so that it it reaches a wider audience? Because that has to be at least one major route to market that doesn't involve it does but it's still trying to work out what the business model is how you do it in this covid world i mean nobody knows the structure nobody knows the pricing models nobody knows what people actually want so i'm gradually evolving these ideas and i would say over the next three months that will become clear i'm talking to a number of different platforms whether it's intrepid uh canvas Moodle, there are all sorts of platforms. Everything we do, I believe, going forward has to have a platform. So it's all part of this learning and why I'm finding, you know, I've never been more excited than I am around this COVID opportunity of taking this message and engaging with people. Well, if anyone listening doesn't have a message of hope from the fact that it's uh, nearly 70 uh, you seem to be um, as excited as the 16-year-old that your father that you wrote to your father about. Then they're missing out on something. Tell me this: How can people get hold of you? Well, they can get hold of me just by through my website. And please, please, please. I'm sorry. Actually, the best thing is email. So it is just Anthony A N T H O N Y at Nomadic School of Business, N-O-M-A-D-I-C, schoolofbusiness.com. But what I'd absolutely love is someone can just pick up the phone and give me a call. I mean, that old-fashioned thing of having your phone ringing is really quite exciting in this sort of uh, 
got to get permission, send someone a message and God knows what else. I quite like someone ringing me up going, hello, I'm here. This is exciting. So my number is plus four four oh seven five six one eight two five five eight five. And please, I would love to talk to anybody who would love to explain, you know, learn more about it. You know, I believe we're born with three airbags of trust. We're born with trust in ourselves, trust in others, and trust in the wonders of Mother Nature. And you imagine these airbags. And if you stand on top, you can see the band playing over the wall. Mm-hmm. And gradually, as we get older, these airbags, they deflate. And instead of jumping off and working out how do we trust ourselves more, we see these cardboard boxes. I need a new job. I need a new relationship. I need a new car. And we grab these cardboard boxes and we put them on top of these airbags. And as we step on them, they just deflate because they're not building our trust. They're destroying our trust and our identity. So anybody interested in how do we build trust and how do we unlock willpower to anybody of any age, any individual or group, please get in contact. Anthony, this has been an absolute inspiration as always. Thank you. Thank you very much. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, I'm pretty sure you will have, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who'd be a good guest, then please contact me at marcuskauke at me.com or marcus at laughs, L-A-U-G-H-S hyphen last, L-A-S-T dot com. That's marcus at laughs, hyphen last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.